I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. From January next year, the LRB will be rerunning our 12-episode close reading series, Among the Ancients, with Emily Wilson and me, Thomas Jones. With a new episode appearing each month, Among the Ancients considers some of the greatest works of ancient Greek and Roman literature, from Homer and Sappho to Horace and Seneca. If you subscribe to the full programme, as well as the podcast episodes, you'll get copies of all the texts discussed in the series, and more, and access to online seminars with Emily and me throughout the year, with special guests Catherine Harlow and Mary Beard. You can find out more and subscribe at the link below or in the shop section of the LRB website or go to lrb.me forward slash ancients where you'll also find details of audio-only options. In the meantime, here's a sample from the first episode on the Iliad. So to begin in this first episode, not exactly at the beginning because it's impossible to say when that was, but with a beginning, the Iliad of Homer. James Davidson wrote in the LRB in 1997 that Homer appears to arrive on the field of literature like a meteorite out of a cloudless sky, but turns out to be a mere pinnacle projecting above the surface, part of the long and ancient chain of the oral tradition. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about the oral tradition and where this apparently fully formed poem emerged from. Yes. So, I mean, one of the frustrating things about oral traditions is that once they're gone, how do we reconstruct? the technology of writing didn't exist in the Greek-speaking world for hundreds of years. So during this time of lack of literacy, these wonderful poetic traditions developed of stories about the heroes who fought at Troy and their tales of homecoming or nostoi. And at the very end of that oral tradition emerge, as if fully formed, as you said, these two monumental poems, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, in this traditional poetic meter, which was used for singing out loud, telling these stories of heroes and telling about these traditional characters. But both the Iliad and the Odyssey have this very unconventional and surprising take on the stories and the formulaic tropes that they're building on. Because calling the poem the Iliad implies that its subject is Troy, Ilium being, being another name for the city. But it doesn't even tell the story of the entire Trojan War, let alone the entire history of the city, does it? So it focuses on this one episode that seems central and canonical to us now because of the Iliad, but it, but it isn't. So what is the, the episode of the war that it tells the story of? Absolutely, yes. So you might think a poem that advertises itself, the Iliad or the Trojan War story, would tell you all about how the Greeks gathered their forces, went to Troy, stayed there for 10 years, the Trojan horse, all of that. It has none of that. There's no Trojan horse in the Iliad. Instead, it takes place during about a month and a half in the 10th year of the war. Um, in the previous 10 years, we get almost nothing about what's been happening for the last 10 years. The Greeks have been gathered in in the um, region of Troy, presumably sacking the neighbouring towns and enslaving the women, because they seem to have a lot of enslaved women with them. Um, in, the, in the story of the Iliad itself, we hear of the anger or wrath of Achilles against 
Agamemnon. So it's a, it's a surprising take also in that it's not about a conflict between the Greeks and the Trojans primarily. It's about a conflict between two members of the elite Greek army. And how, how does the anger of Achilles get formed? What's at stake in that anger? And the terrible cost that is inflicted on the Greek army by the absence of Achilles. So it's a, it's a heroic action story, which is about absence and inaction. And it's, all, it's also about both external action, men killing each other, but also internal action. What are Achilles' feelings and how do they form and how do they go away? How does Achilles, in some way or other, rejoin his community? It's because at the beginning, and for much of the poem, of course, he's, he's sulking in his tent. Yes. Oh, at least he's he's not doing it. He's not fighting, at least. I mean, he's playing the liar and he's hanging out with his his dear friend Patroclus. Um, but he's certainly not fighting. So, so one question from that is, who are Achilles and Agamemnon? They're Greek kings, Greek leaders, but in what sense are they Greek? And, and even in what sense are they kings? Because I mean, how many people did they lead, as it were. Yes. So Greek is in a way an anachronism, but in talking about this period, this poem, because the unified country of Greece, of course, didn't exist in this period. The various leaders of the Greek-speaking forces come from, as the catalogue of, of ships in Book 2 reminds us, from all over the Greek-speaking world. They presumably in real life would have spoken completely different dialects of Greek. They're leading forces from their own um, principalities. They're, they're chieftains who are bringing their own tribes to gather together to fight against the Trojans in Asia Minor. So in a way, the poem sort of manages to tell the beginning of the story by, by retelling how did the, the Greek-speaking forces come to fight. It retells that in book two, and then we have a sort of retelling of how did the Trojan prince Paris steal the, um, the wife of Menelaus the brother of Ag Agamemnon, these Greek-speaking chiefs um, were enraged at the capture of this woman. But none of that is told in any straightforward way in the poem. It's all, it's all there as backstory that the listener is assumed already to know. And that question that you said that they would all have spoken different dialects, but of course in the, in the poem they all speak the same language, and the Trojans also speak that language. That In the poem, that the Achaeans, the Greeks, and the Trojans... Are they different peoples to the extent they speak the same language, they worship the same gods, they appear to trade across the same spaces to inhabit the same worlds? Is there a sense in which the Trojan War is a civil war, an Aegean civil war? It certainly presented that there's surprisingly little difference between the quote-unquote Greeks and the Trojans. And you're right that they all speak the same language, which is this strange hodgepodge language which nobody in real life ever spoke, um, which is a reflection of the fact that the oral tradition on which this poem is based developed over multiple different areas of the Greek-speaking world, and it collects together different dialect terms, different dialect phrases, different dialect forms, such that, in a way, this, these poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, are sort of themselves symptomatic of um, cultural assimilation or of multiculturalism, that they're, they're all forming an enterprise together, even if that enterprise is killing each other. And does the poem take sides? There's no, I mean, it doesn't really, does it? It's not as if the Greeks are the goodies and the Trojans are the baddies or the other way around. There are no goodies or baddies. I mean, the, the gods are pretty cruel. Are they the baddies? No, they're, they're powerful, wonderful, you know, worship-worthy beings. 
the bodies are perhaps mortality and the fragility of the human body. And, but that's also part of what makes things so beautiful and so glorious is how, how few hours we have on earth. And the poem makes you so aware of that and aware of how, how beautiful it is to, to be alive and to be brave for a few moments or for a few days. And should we listen now to a reading from your translation in progress? And this is Achilles hurling angry abuse at Agamemnon in book one. Yes, so so I said that the poem is the, the plot of the poem is premised on the anger of Achilles against Agamemnon and it hinges on the uneasy alliance between different ways that elite warriors can be powerful, that Achilles is the one who's the best athlete, the best fighter, but he's not the most rich or socially powerful. And he's hurling insults at the socially powerful Agamemnon, who's trying to boss him around. Fat wino, dog face, courage like a deer. You never dared to arm yourself and join the troops in battle or the best Greek fighters on raids. That seems like death to you. You'd rather go through the great Greek camp and take the prize of any man who dares to speak against you. Cannibal king, you eat your people up! Chief of non-entities, or this would be your last atrocity. I swear to you, a mighty oath by this staff here, which will grow no more leaves or shoots. Its growth was over as soon as it had left its mountain stump. It will not sprout again. Now bronze has stripped its leaves and bark. Now warriors grasp it in firm hands when they judge and guard our norms. By this I swear a mighty oath, one day the Greeks will all be longing for Achilles. You'll yearn to help, but you'll be powerless. Many will fall beneath the murderous hands of Hector. Then you'll claw your heart inside you, distraught, because you failed to show respect towards the best of the Achaeans. Thank you for listening. Among the Ancients is one of three close reading series from the London Review of Books next year. The other two are on 19th and 20th century long poems and short stories and medieval literature. For details of all three series, go to lrb.me forward slash close readings.